Good evening, church. My name is Noelin, and I'll be reading a scripture passage for tonight from First Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. If you'd like a copy of the Bible, we have uh, copies in the lobby. We ask that if you pick one, you keep it as a gift to you. Again, we'll be reading from First Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. Um, please read along with me. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Nolan. Well, good evening, everybody. It's good to be with you. A special welcome to those of you who may be new, joining us for the first time. Isaac, it's great to have you with us. We should do this more often. Um, uh, so we're continuing our series in First Peter. And First Peter is written by Peter, uh, one of Jesus' closest friends. And Peter's a man who... Uh, knew what it was like to cave to peer pressure. You know, he denied Jesus when it mattered most. And so now he's writing to other Christians after Jesus did a great work in him. And he's saying, here's how you live as a follower of Jesus in a culture that looks down on what you believe. And uh, what he addresses tonight is the important question of how do you live when you know an era is coming to an end and a new era is being ushered in? So the most important era, right? Christ returning. And so you know through personal experience when an era in your life is ending and a new one's coming in, that it does something to your emotions and your actions. So like one of the clearest things I can think of is my final few weeks in undergrad. You know, so if you went to undergrad, you remember this as your college career is coming to a close. Uh, that sweet season where you have like four years of very little responsibility and it's basically one long friends episode. And you have these mixed emotions because you're excited to go to the next stage, although I know some of you wish you never left. And then, But there's also that sadness, right, because of all the relationship you built and some really amazing memories. And so what do you do in your final few weeks? Well, you do things like you call up your closest friends and you go to that restaurant that you love to visit to share that one final meal and raise glasses, you know, for that final time. I'm not crying, you're crying, you say. You know, you go visit your, the professors that really cared for you, and you, you go to them to, to thank them. You apply for jobs and so forth. Like, there's things you do because you know that the end of that season is drawing to a close, right? And uh, along with that, there's also things that you don't do. So it wouldn't make sense to sign, to, to renew your lease on your apartment, for example, especially if you're moving out of the area. It just wouldn't make sense because a new era is coming in. Uh, another quick example, we have two people in our church who are about to get married. I won't name them, but uh, Nick and Abby are getting married in two weeks. And, you know, so like their era, right, of not being married is drawing to a close. And so it, it wouldn't make sense for Abby to say, for example, to just buy a new home in Washington State without talking to Nick about it. Or for them to do something crazy with their finances or to go start dating other people because a new era is coming in, right? We, we know this. And so what Peter's saying is more important than leaving college, more important than getting married, more important than any other transition, Jesus is returning. And so it makes sense in light of the fact that, yeah, it might be a year from now, it might be after we die, but it is an era that's going to be as quick as a wave on the sand in retrospect. So 
are our emotions and actions being affected accordingly? And so he talks about this, you know, the end is at hand, therefore do these things. And so let's look at this passage under these two categories of thought that he gives us for how to live in light of the end, in light of the fact that Jesus is returning to, new, to renew the world. Uh, first, we'll see the logic of the Christian life. So what's the, what's the logic to, to the life that we live in light of Christ's return? And then number two, what are the practices of the Christian life in light of Christ's return? So first, the logic of the Christian life. And then, uh, number two, the practices of the Christian life. How do we live in light of the fact that a new era is coming? So, uh, verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And so, right off the bat here, what you see, he says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, here's how you should live. And here, we saw this last week. What we're seeing is the ongoing thread of the Bible that whenever God calls you to do something... He always connects it to ultimate reality. So last week we saw, you know, here's why we're supposed to not live lives of self-gratification. He says, therefore, because Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he'll bring us to God, right? Because Jesus did these things, therefore we live this way. God never says, do this, like, out of consistency with what ultimate reality is. And it's, it's worth pointing out that this is in utter contrast to modern thought. And how we are trained to live uh, in our current, at least in the West. And so, here's an example of what I mean. So, think about morality. So, the common meta narrative that's you know preached in the arts and humanities, among you know stories and media and, and so forth, is something like there probably is no God. If there is a God, He doesn't really have much of a bearing on how we live, and you know there is no transcendent purpose to human life. Uh, we're here by accident. When you die, you rot. Therefore, racism's wrong. Therefore, oppression is wrong. And what a lot of cultural commentators, many of them who aren't Christian, have rightly pointed out, there's an inconsistency there. That's a non sequitur to say there's ultimately no purpose for life. There's no objective basis from which you can distinguish the value of a human from, say, a mouse or a bag of rocks. And then to say, but... It's wrong to be racist, which, for the record, it is wrong. But what they say is, if you push someone, okay, why is it wrong? And I understand I can't do a you know fair um, representation of, of the argument, but if you keep pressing them, it might come down to something like, well, just you know, we we know it's wrong. Well, there's a lot of cultures, especially in the East, who don't necessarily believe it's wrong. So why is your Euro-American opinion better than theirs? Especially when at the the heart of reality, if we came here through natural selection. It's the powerful who survive. So why shouldn't the powerful be able to do what they want? And ultimately, uh, what these scholars say is you, you can't appeal to anything higher than your own emotional preference is what it essentially comes down to. You can't appeal to any objective standards. So you can only reference yourself, which is nothing more than an emotional preference. And that's just, that's not sound reasoning. You can't reason that way. So the, your conclusion, you know, justice is good. It doesn't flow from the premise we're here by accident. Whereas what Jesus says, no, it's actually because human beings are made in the image of God. That's what distinguishes from the rest of creation. That's what gives them value. 
Uh, further, because there is a God, me, who made the world, I'm the transcendent norm by which all other morality needs to be measured. So that's why some, that's why oppression's wrong. That's why justice is a good thing. And further, even as Christians, right, if you believe God saved you when you didn't deserve it and when you were different from God, you have no right to treat someone else worse because they're different than you. So there's a very clear, here's ultimate reality, here's who God is, and then it flows <clears throat> to here's why we should behave. And so what Peter's doing here is, He's doing the same thing. Here's what ultimate reality is with regard to the end of the world. Therefore, because this is how God is going to renew creation, you need to live. And let's contrast this with, with modern thought again. And so uh, an example I um, saw of this a long time ago was, so this was maybe six years ago, I purchased this little book called uh, What Does It All Mean? Uh, it's the, the title's written in big letters on the cover. Sometimes I just kind of put it on the counter to see what guests say when they come over. But what does it all mean? Is it, you know, a very short introduction to philosophy by Thomas Nagel. He's an atheist. He teaches at NYU. It's, it's very readable, very accessible. And the final chapter he writes is called The Meaning of Life. And he's asking the question, um, essentially, okay, if there is no ultimate purpose for human beings, and at the end we die, we rot, is there any motivation for doing anything at all. And and here's what he says. So the idea seems to be that we're in some kind of rat race, struggling to achieve our goals and make something of our lives. But this, so striving really hard to make something of our lives, makes sense only if those achievements will be permanent. But those achievements won't be permanent. Because even if you produce a great work of literature read for thousands of years, eventually... The universe is going to wind down or collapse, and all trace of your efforts will vanish. If you think about the whole thing, there seems to be no point. It wouldn't matter if you had ever existed. And so then he says, okay, we well, might say, okay, yeah, big picture, it won't matter if I ever existed, because the universe is going to wind down, humans will be extinct. Well, isn't it, isn't it enough that I get to the train on time today? Or isn't it enough that I remember to feed my cat? Or isn't it enough that I you know, find enjoyment in friends and work? And what he says is, the only way you can stay motivated is by, quote, avoiding setting your sights higher, asking what the whole point of the entire thing is. For once you do that, you open yourself to the possibility that your life is meaningless. And if the grave is the goal, perhaps it's ridiculous to take ourselves so seriously. Life may not only be meaningless, but also absurd, (laughs) He's exactly right. So you you hear his point. What he's saying is, in the micro, you want the things that you do to have meaning. Like, there's a reason if you get very irritated, if you have a two-hour-long work meeting that seems to accomplish nothing. Okay, we could have done this in ten minutes on the side. Why do we have ten people in this two-hour-long Zoom meeting? It accomplished nothing. Or if somebody were to say, hey, go stand on the corner of your street for five days, you wouldn't do it. Why? Because it would be meaningless. What would it accomplish? And what Tom Nagel is saying is, don't you see that's a picture of your life as a whole, right? When you zoom out, your life is just as meaningful as standing on the corner of the street for five days because ultimately nothing is accomplished. And so he says, in order to still, he's, he's like, he's not saying that, what he's saying is, he's like, I'm not saying if you don't believe in God, you can't do a lot of good things. He, he says, the only way you can do that, though, is by not thinking, right? By not thinking about the big picture. Whereas with Peter, it's the exact opposite, Peter says, no, it's precisely by thinking, it's precisely by being logical, when you think about ultimate reality, that motivates you to live in the present. 
And getting to, to this passage, it's because this world isn't just going to vanish, but Christ is going to renew creation, and the things that you do today and in this life deeply matter, that's why you should live in the present, because there's going to be ripple effects into eternity. So it's an incredible motivation for living. And so if you're here and you're exploring the faith, um, you know, those, if you have intuitions, and I'm sure you do, that things like oppression is wrong, and that you should work hard to, to live with purpose, just my encouragement to you is those are good intuitions. And they actually are in you because you're made in the image of God. And so just why don't you consider what Peter, whereas when you follow Jesus, by actually thinking more about the basis of what you believe, that gives you more motivation to live, not less. Just something to consider. And uh, for you all who are followers of Jesus here, I, I hope this isn't philosophical for you. And I certainly hope this isn't making you think, yeah, see, like my belief system makes sense. No, the point here is, you know, just as unbelievers can be inconsistent with their worldview, what Peter's saying is, what Peter's asking is, are you being inconsistent? You know, knowing, you know, just like if you're dating somebody and you know you're going to meet your, um, your boyfriend or girlfriend's parents for the first time and they're coming over, you're not just going to be laying around in your pajamas or whatever you slept in and have your kitchen be a mess. No, you're going to get ready for their arrival. He goes, in your day-to-day life, is there an urgency about how you live? Um, is there a difference in, in your emotions and in how you use your time because Christ is coming and there won't be any do-overs once he arrives? Okay, so that, that's the first thing, is there's a logic here, um, and it's really quite a challenge. Are you living in light of the fact that Christ is returning and what you do here matters? That's number one, logic of the Christian life. So number two, in light of this fact that Christ is returning and renew the world, now how do we live? And notice the polls that Peter avoids here. So one thing he doesn't say is become a religious fanatic and start drawing a bunch of charts and make signs and go march on Capitol Hill, you know, that the end of the world is coming. No, don't become a fanatic. But he also says, don't be idle. This is what Paul admonished the Thessalonians to do. He goes, okay, you all think, okay, Jesus is returning, so you're just standing around looking up at the sky. So he doesn't say become a fanatic, but he also doesn't say be idle. He says, no, live with purpose. Okay, so how are you supposed to live? And notice the thread, the common denominator of the things he says. It's, it's simply things like pray hard, love authentically, be gracious hosts, Use your gifts for others. These are very ordinary things. And that's the point. Yet again, what Peter's showing us is rarely does God call you to be an extraordinary person, but to practice ordinary faithfulness and pursue godliness in the basic but difficult things he's called you to do. And through that, he accomplishes extraordinary things. So let's go through these items that he, that he talks about. So first, in verse 7, Pray hard. Pray earnestly. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. It's interesting to me that this is the third time, I believe, in Peter, that Peter has connected your life to the efficacy of your prayers. So one example is when he's talking to husbands, and what he says, if you don't cherish your wife and care for her well because she's an heir with you in the grace of life, God will not hear your prayers. Okay, and then he, he says it again later in the, the verses 8 through 12 section. Now here again he's saying, be self-controlled and sober-minded or clear-headed for the sake of your prayers. How you live impacts your prayer life, and how you pray impacts how you live. You see that? And so uh, what he's getting is just the very simple principle of 
if your life is caught up in the, the rat race, as Nagel put it, right, of the world, if you're viewing identity formation and meaning and happiness through how the world does, and you're just living through that lens, then your prayer life is going to be very different. Either you won't pray, because that doesn't sound like it'll make me happy, or when you do pray, your prayers will tend to be a lot more self-centered. You know, so Lord, please... Uh, give me this job, give me this relationship, uh, give me this, give me that. Now, don't get me wrong, God wants you to come to him with those desires, so please do that. But the question is, what constitutes the majority of your prayers? Because when you are living self-controlled, clear-headed, and in the context of the passage that came right before this, essentially living for others rather than yourself, your prayers are going to take a much different shape. So the majority of your prayers may be things like, Lord, because you are going to be coming... Uh, give me the strength to live for you today. Um, you'll be praying for your church, your fellow brothers and sisters in your church more. Uh, Father, help my brothers and sisters to see Christ as beautiful today. Uh, help them to, to experience you today as they're going about their work or having this difficult conversation. Father, will you please give me an opportunity to share with one of my coworkers the good news about Jesus? When you're living in light of the gospel or living in light of the end, your prayers will look different. And then on the flip side... When you are praying in this way, it's going to impact how you live. And so when you pray in this way, what it won't do is it's not going to prevent hard things from coming into your life. But what it will do is when the storms do come, you'll be a far more resilient person. You'll be a deeper person. You'll be a wiser person. And also your life will be a lot more exciting because you're actually living in the design that you were made for with Christ. So that's the first thing he says. Your life impacts your prayers. Your prayer impacts your life. So pray hard. Okay, number two, what does he say? Okay, love authentically. Verse eight, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. So keep loving, this idea of its ongoing love. And so the first thing we see here about what what real love is, is it requires proximity. So it's easy to, it's relatively easy to love somebody who you're only gonna be with for five or 10 minutes, you know, do something nice for them and move on. It's a lot harder to love somebody when you're with them over and over and over again, when you have to keep dealing with their mess. So that's why a lot of you have become roommates with good friends, and after a year, you're no longer friends. (laughs) Why? You know, because you've been with them for such a long time. But he says, no, real love, it's ongoing where you're in proximate relationship with that person. So as their inevitable mess starts to come to the surface, you you actually have to be loving toward them. And so here as we think about, because this is still, this is the final section under the heading of in chapter 12, verse 2, where he's saying, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So when they see your good deeds, they'll become Christians and glorify God in the day of visitation. Peter says, when you have this type of community, where you have, he's talking with people who, the church is here around the Mediterranean. These, these are people who are a lot different from each other than, than we are. But when you're living in this type of intimate relationship, that's going to point people to the gospel. And so... I know we talked about last October becoming a tighter family, you know, over this year, and you guys have, from, from what I've seen, we've been doing a much better job of that, which is awesome. I just, I want to encourage us to keep going, because the the current or the tide or the, the pull of our nature is always going to go back to the, well, you know, just most of the people here I just don't really click with, or they're just a lot different than me. Um, you know, I just, it's better if I just spend time with these people, or if I just, you know, do my own thing. But Peter's saying, that's, that's the point of how Christ's kingdom works. When you're regularly with people who you normally wouldn't be with apart from Christ bringing you together, that's what proclaims to the world we are unique people. And 
apologetically, as we think about the cultural moment we're in, uh, more and more people aren't persuaded by, you know, rational argumentation. It's just like, like, is this true isn't even a question a lot of people are asking. But here's what a lot of people are asking. Is this aesthetically satisfying? Is this beautiful? And you know what's beautiful? A community of people coming together, being in proximate relationship with one another and loving one another across difference, especially when we wrong one another. And so if we want people in this city, particularly if we're sharing the good news to people who are coming from a different religion or people who are in the LGBTQ community or people in a lot of other different communities, if they don't see behind our message of the gospel a community that's lavish in its affection, a community that's magnificent in its connection, there's not going to be as much backing up what we're saying. And so I just want to say let's keep going and becoming a community that's regularly spending time with one another. So when people visit, when people hang out with us on the weekends, it's clear that there's an affection that we have for one another across difference. Okay, so keep loving. And then the second part of authentic love is, he says, love covers a multitude of sins. So authentic love covers a multitude of sins. So um, how authenticity is more or less defined in our culture is you should do or express on the outside what you feel on the inside. But what Jesus says is love actually often feels hard. Like that's at the heart of what love is, is it's sacrifice, it's not sentiment. And so real love, it often hurts, right? Like actually forgiving somebody who you don't think deserves forgiveness, that's hard, but real love is loving when it, when it hurts. It's, sac- it's sacrificial. It's not sentimental. And so when he says it covers a multitude of sins, what, he's, what he doesn't say is you just ignore wrong, wrongdoing and you, just, you let people walk all over you. No, that you love somebody by confronting them if they are sinning against you. But what covering a multitude of sins essentially means is you don't remember or you don't hold on to the flaws of others. You know, whether it's something in their past, you just continue replaying the tapes over, or it's somebody that you see pretty regularly, and you view them through the grid more of their flaws rather than the fact that they're made in the image of God, and how can you love them well? That's the kind of love Peter's talking about here, just as Christ first gave it to us. Okay, so love authentically, pray hard. Number three, gracious hospitality. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So can we acknowledge the fact I, that I love that Peter knows that we're probably going to grumble? When we have to, I remember you know when Kelsey and I were community group leaders. There were I'd like to say only one night where you know it's thirty minutes before a group, and I just look over and I just I just really hope nobody shows up tonight. You know, <laughs> and you know she she said. Right, because like hospitality is nice in theory, yeah, like you know, have people over. But like when it's ongoing, and especially on nights where you've just had an argument with your spouse, or you're exhausted, from, it's hard. Like it's hard. Peter knows we're going to grumble, and he's talking to us in the context of suffering. And so I think Peter just knows the simple fact that when you're suffering, or even just if you're stressed, as your stress goes up, your patience goes down. Does it not? And as you, as you begin to suffer, as you're stressed, you begin to adopt the, the mindset of, you know, okay, so everybody needs to orbit around me. People need to see me. People need to pay attention to me. What Peter encourages, I mean, have you ever considered that if you're in pain, other people are in pain too? If you're feeling lonely, other people around you are feeling lonely too? Like, if, you, if you're facing something you don't know how to handle, you're just exhausted. Other people are exhausted too. 
And so just show simple hospitality, which means opening up your, taking the initiative to help somebody feel home is what hospitality is. Taking the initiative to help somebody feel like they have a harbor. And one of the times that Kelsey and I experienced this was nine years ago when you know, we were just drowning in hospital visits and physical pain and tens of, tens of thousands of dollars in medical debt. And we had demanding jobs. And just every day, there was this weight on our hearts of, can we make it another day? And two people in our community group, one evening, they, they just bought us really good Chinese food. And they came over. And they didn't even say much. They, just, they simply just unpacked the food, you know, set the table for us. They sat down with us. They didn't ask us about all the burdens we were carrying. They just sat and ate with us. And through that simple act, it, it was as if they were bringing spring into the long winter of our home life. Like we felt seen. Like somebody actually knew what we were going through. And that was one of the ways that God communicated to us that through my people, you're going to be okay. And so do you see what Peter means here by these very ordinary... And it was a sacrifice. I mean, they had to make sure they were out of work on time. They spent money on that meal. They came over. It wasn't convenient for them. But through that ordinary act, it helped me and Kelsey continue. Spiritually, emotionally, physically. It's the power of these ordinary acts. Just helping somebody else feel home. And then number four... Uh, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied, of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. So here he gives two categories of gifts. One is speaking, and then the other is serving. And so with speaking, um, this of course applies to people who preach and teach full time. However, it also uh, applies to anyone who's speaking to other people in the context of friendships and community life. And so when he says speaking oracles of God there, what he's saying is speaking the words that God has already revealed to us in his word to other people. And so he's simply saying there's something powerful that happens when in a friendship, in a discipleship group, up here on Sunday evenings, when God's word is proclaimed, it helps us be rooted in the one who's eternal and magnificent rather than using the words of the world which are always fleeting and hollow and have no real power to change our hearts. So using our words wisely to build one another up. And then number two, serving as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. So when God calls you to serve, he doesn't say go out and serve. He actually supplies you with the strength. And there there are varied gifts, you know, he says, um, by, by God's varied grace. So some of you are gifted in administration, Thank God this church would have died a long time ago if we didn't have people here with administrative gifts. Other people have incredible gifts of organization. Just when you put your hands to a project, like things become clear and things happen. Other people, others of you are phenomenal at helping people feel welcome in your home. Others of you are great at encouragement. You know, so we have varied gifts here. And the whole point of this is when he says to be good stewards of God's very grace. A steward is you own something that doesn't belong to you. So who you are and all the things that God has given you really aren't yours to be hoarded, but they're yours to be given to other people. And here, you know, you guys, nearly, if not all of you, serve so much. And so I just want to say thank you for being a model to me of uh, what that looks like to, to serve through the strength that God supplies. Um, I'm 
so much more happier and whole because of it. This church is, and so is our city. So just, yeah, thank you guys for being an incredible example of that, being stewards of the gifts that God's given you. So as we do all these things, what happens? Uh, Second half of verse 11. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So do you want to live a full life? Do you want to glorify Jesus Christ with your life? What does he not say to do? He doesn't say, okay, if you want to glorify Jesus with your life, make sure you convert 30 people before you die. If you want to glorify Jesus, you know, go overseas. Unless your name's Isaac, then do that. <laughs> okay. If you, want, if you want to glorify Jesus, if you want to live a full life, then you know, kill it in your job or start, up, start a revolutionary startup. No, he doesn't say, how do you glorify Jesus Christ? Everything we've just been talking about. Pray hard. Love authentically. Be a, be, exercise gracious hospitality. Use your life not for yourself, for other people. These are ordinary things, and as you do it, it glorifies Jesus. And can we simply ask ourselves, is there anything more wonderful in your life than glorifying Jesus Christ? Think about how beautiful Jesus is, even when you think about him, how he lived out these ordinary things in this list. Okay, being self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So Jesus' entire life, his life informed his prayers, his prayer informed his life. And this is repeat all these little mini decisions of him loving other people, waking up early to pray, loving other people, waking up early to pray. And what that did for him was this built a foundation for him where when the moment mattered most for him to choose to pray or to not pray, um, that's when everything hung in the balance. I think where the moment was for him was Gethsemane. I don't think it was at the cross because in Gethsemane, that was where he resolved to, I'm going to set my gaze like flint to the cross. And so in Gethsemane, as Peter, the author, is sleeping, and Jesus can feel the terror and the devilry of the cross looming on him, it was in that moment that your fate, that your fate and my fate and the fate of the world hung in the balance. And I'm, I'm so glad he prayed. <laughs> like the, the fact that in that moment he chose not to run, which he could have, but he knelt he got on his knees and he said, Father, I don't have the strength to do what I need to do. Will you please help me to live for other people and not myself in this moment? And that prayer changed history. And then in light of that prayer, he went to the cross. And on the cross, how much did it hurt Jesus Christ to love you? I don't, I don't know, but it, it hurt a lot. What multitude of sins did Jesus cover as he was loving you? Every single one. Every single sin, every single regret, every single thought of despair, past, present, and future, because he's that extravagant. Why? To be a gracious host. To bring you in at the very heart of things, to eat and drink at his table in the kingdom of God. And you know, for the people watching him, all of those things didn't, wouldn't have looked very extraordinary in the moment. Jesus praying. Even on the cross, it wouldn't have looked just another guy getting humiliated by the Romans. But through his ordinary faithfulness, he takes your loneliness and gives you belonging. He takes your despair and gives you confidence. 
and is going to renew the world with his power. He is an amazing Savior. And then he gives you his strength to follow in his footsteps. And these things anybody can do. Anybody can pray hard. Anybody can love authentically. Anyone can be a gracious host or serve others. And so what this means is, unlike our culture which says you have to be great, you have to be brilliant, you have to be good looking, in the kingdom of Jesus, what he says is, even if you think you are the weakest Christian, even if you think you are the most failed believer, even if you think you are so, so broken that you can't be of any good to anybody, Think again, because it is the least in my kingdom that I use to display my grace. And display his glory to believers and unbelievers. And so just over this next week, just pray hard. For a lot of you, there's probably somebody in your life where you are, you're still remembering their flaws. You're still holding on to it. Let it It'll change you forever, I promise. And just continue to practice gracious, gracious hospitality to those around you, using your life for others. And through that, God will be glorified to Jesus Christ. To him be the dominion and glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for Jesus. And, yeah. Thank you so much for him and help us to live as he did and be empowered by him. And uh, through that, Lord, uh, do wonderful things in our community and in our city around us. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.